the inaugural episode, kind of. I'm back in the podcasting world. I stopped podcasting just about a year ago to work on some other projects. I was hosting a live show and dating for a bit. Um, that's over now. And uh, in the last couple of months, I've made a few appearances in other people's podcasts, speaking about sexuality and relationships and mindfulness and brainwashing and all that fun stuff. And uh, I just remembered how much I love these stream of consciousness conversations. So this is the kickoff episode with my friend Omer Pani. Ohm is a DS instructor based in New York City. He is also the author of Prerequisites to Ecstasy. You can find it on Amazon. I've studied with him. I've taught with him. And what I love about his perspective is that it's not about, particularly when it comes to DS, domination, submission, but also relationships and intimacy and sexuality, that it's not just about uh, checking off something on your sexual bucket list. It's not about whips and chains. It's not about being kinky for the sake of being kinky. Ohm really digs into the psychology of human dynamics, whether it's dominance and submission or, as his book uh, is titled, uh, Entering Ecstasy, which requires a certain level of emotional intimacy in order to feel that physical pleasure or emotional pleasure or even spiritual pleasure. And um, the applications of these dynamics he talks about, I find super interesting, both in the bedroom. I mean, obviously, we're th- talking about sex and relationships here. But also, a lot of his uh, perspective applies to our regular life social interactions, whether at work or with family or in totally non-sexual situations. Um, these psychological principles uh, still carry a lot of weight. In this episode, we speak about masculine-feminine dynamics, uh, what blocks people from intimacy, and we answer some fun questions uh, from the audience. So uh, one thing about this podcast is that I record live in front of a virtual audience uh, every episode. Uh, so if you want to be part of the virtual audience, uh, you can uh, follow me at crowdcast.io slash Rwando. You'll see a list of all of the upcoming episodes and guests. Uh, just follow and you can join the conversation. This is episode 001, Omerpani, Prerequisites to Ecstasy. You're listening to the Rwando Podcast, Perpetual Orgasm, Infinite Play. Please subscribe on iTunes and enjoy the show. All right. Well, I've been excited to speak to you about this book um, and speak to you about relationships in general, because I've taken your classes. I've mostly been single every time I've spoken to you or taken a class. But now I'm personally in a relationship, uh, which I entered shortly after reading your book. No, no coincidence, I'm sure. But um, yeah, so excited to have you here. Um, Thank you for having me. Totally. Um, So we'll talk about your book and we'll probably dig into those specific topics. But um, before we dig into anything specific, I, I anticipate we'll be talking about Eros uh, throughout. Um, and I love, and what I love about your your take on relationships is not like just general. This is what allows intimacy, but you, you really pay attention to the archetypes and the subconscious and these patterns that most people don't uh, really consider. Um, so, could you uh, just give an overview of your view of Eros and uh, how it applies to relationships? I think you can start with the foundation of Eros in biology. You can say its foundation is in the second chakra, its foundation is in reproduction, its foundation is in two bodies of opposite polarities that come together to form a third body. That's kind of is the earthly aspect of it, the grounding aspect of it. Hmm. It's so creative at its root. And from there, 
as with just about everything else in the human system, the energy that is available in the procreative center has the potential to rise higher. Hmm. It has the potential to reach higher centers. I very much uh, subscribe to the Indian model of the chakra system of the Kundalini energy. So it very much, I very much work in the model that we have one central energy. The Hindus would call it Kundalini energy. The Taoists would call it Chi. And at the level of procreation, when that energy flows in the second center, it is miraculous. It creates a new body. It creates life. And when it moves to higher centers, when it moves to the fourth, fifth, and sixth centers, it has the potential to create experiences of ecstasy. It can be a path to the divine. It can be a path towards awakening. And eros is kind of my word for describing that entire potentiality of the sexual energy, even more so above the procreative level. Because nature pretty much takes care of that. And here we are more interested in what else can we do with it? Because obviously we are not having a conversation about procreation here. We're not right. People know how to do that. Actually, they don't even need to know how to do it. <laughs> so much more. It's kind of nature's provenance. Nature almost takes care of it mm -hmm. 100%. Yeah. The conversation is about how can we, what else is possible with that energy? Obviously, in a long-term relationship, having a joyous and uh, ongoing connection with our partners, Eros, is very important. And at those levels, I think uh, some more exploration and understanding is needed, some more wisdom is needed, and some more deliberateness is needed. At the procreative level, this energy is pretty much automatic. Hmm. Birds do it, bees do it. It's kind of straightforward. But I think when the same energy is reaching other levels, when it is uh, mingling with our esteem center, when it is mingling with our heart, with our love, it has many ramifications and many possibilities. And I think, uh, yeah, so let's leave it there for now. Cool. Yeah, I'm glad you brought the chakras because uh, so I'm not super familiar with chakras uh, beyond yoga classes I've taken. And uh and I, and I love how you framed it in a way that can be comparable, I guess, in a sense to Meg Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And my favorite part of your book actually was where you spoke about like the first chakra relationship, the second chakra relationship, and like these like, you know, lower expressions of sexual energy or eros in, uh, in a relationship. Could you speak a little on that? Very much so. I feel, I feel the biggest hurdles actually that couples are facing Maybe they've always faced it, but I can't really speak to all the times of the past. But certainly in our times, the place where Eros, it's like almost imagine, you know, it's like it's like they say all rivers run to the ocean. Mm -hmm. This metaphor, this uh, image of the river running to the ocean is also a, it is a very useful metaphor the sufis use it the hindus use it the Taoists use it about us getting separated and then running and then flowing back to our origin so if there is but you know the path is not easy there we get lost along the way the rivers get lost along the way and, and by think, rivers just to clarify the metaphor uh, the rivers of the people I'm using a metaphor. in this our metaphor we can say our kundalini energy 
if the path towards the higher centers were as simple as you know water flowing through an unobstructed path gotcha from the mountain peak to the ocean it would be a pretty straight gravity would take care of it right our system has many challenges and there are many ways areas where our energies can get lost they can get trapped they can take a detour and one of the biggest places where our erotic energy is getting lost these days and is in our esteem it's in our third center so people are trying many different ways to answer the challenges of their esteem through their sex they are trying to have sex to prop up their esteem they are trying to have sex to compensate for the difficulties or the pain or the challenges they have felt in finding their esteem in this world and uh, it's a very common hurdle and it's yeah. it's one thing i see people in a lot of confusion and often lost like not knowing where they're stuck not knowing what's happened like where has the water gone why isn't it reaching the yeah fire. that was a the piece that hit home and actually it, it touches me in my relationship now because my girlfriend often like uh teases me like oh am i just an ego trip to you like do you just yeah. like like having you know a hot girlfriend who you do sexual things with and i sometimes i you know i know she's teasing me but i have to think about it like how much right. of it am i valid how much am i using the relationship to validate myself right it's a very tender spot it is an unavoidable trap Mm-hmm. it is absolutely unavoidable it is i think it is uh unavoidable to both sexes quite frankly i think women face an even bigger challenge in this particular area in the third center area because truthfully women's sex is valued more than men's it's just a reality mm-hmm. we have always um women are the ones who are desired women are the ones who are pursued women are the ones to whom the man proves his worth tries to prove his worth so that she must select him so she may say yes to him yes. so this the worth you know our worth especially a woman's worth is kind of very intricately tied up to the sexual energy at least it starts off that way and especially when our esteem center is not well developed especially in youth especially in our teenage years uh to first for a young woman to come into her sex to see that now she is desired now she is becoming a woman and in a way her social value goes up she is uh pursued she is people want her that can is is very much a direct vulnerability point that sex and one's attractiveness can now be used towards propping up one's esteem words mm-hmm. raising one's value in the world in the community and in in one's own estimation as well and uh it's a very wicked trap actually it's i mean all there are many traps to our esteem journey but that certainly is one of them yeah and it seems like of the three lower chakras uh that's like the it's hard to to identify that as an as a problem because you can seemingly have a healthy relationship where you're both using each other to validate your self esteem um because like with the lower it's from what i understood from your book at the first level it's just like if you're needing each other for economic support and that's easy to identify 
and the second chakra is like needing each other for sex and pleasure right second chakra kind of would be almost it would be either for procreation or actually just in a way using the other person for the most basic use of the second chakra which is mm-hmm. kind of relief the relief sex hmm. So like your booty call relationship is a second chakra relationship. It is okay. kind of a second chakra relationship. It's kind of mutual relief at most. It doesn't go very deep. Mm-hmm. If you you can kind of spot the second chakra relationship when you hear people talk about it. I mean, I haven't you know I haven't been quite part of the hookup culture that seems to be prevalent on campuses these days. But when I here are the people talk about it or they speak their, you know, how it is constructed. It very much sounds like a second chakra contract. You mm-hmm. almost, you actually, they speak as if they actually don't want to go deeper. That if mm-hmm. you express a desire that you want to go deeper with somebody, that actually kind of is almost like a betrayal of the agreement. Mm-hmm. Like they just that there is a casualness to it. But it is, I mean, it's kind of depressing in my opinion. But you can almost see it is very much a second center contract. This is just sex, nothing else. Don't come into my heart. Don't even try. I don't want you there. I don't want you any deeper. Don't ask me about my hobbies. Don't ask me to. Don't ask me out even to dinner because I don't want to spend time. Because something else might happen if we go deeper, and I don't want that. Yeah. So, yeah. So how does one grow past the third center? Pain, I think. Suffering. <laughs> Old age, get some gray in your beard first. Uh, the third chakra is a—it's the big trial of our life. I think we only move past our third chakra games when they stop working. So failure is the path through the third chakra. Mm. A particular game stops working, then we kind of out of desperation say, "Well, now what?" So if you feel, if you truly feel that you can prop up your esteem through conquest. Whether a man feels that way or a woman may even feel that way or a woman feels, the more men who pursue me, the more I can estimate myself and value. You can play that game for as long as you want. It will stop working. That's mm. it's guaranteed. It'll stop working. In the sense of it'll stop, you'll stop getting validated, but also it'll stop feeling good. It will, yeah. It will have a diminishing return. It will, uh, because it is not a true way to fortify the third center. It is not a true path to esteem. Mm-hmm. But it is a very tempting path to try. Everybody tries it. And I think once once you uh, reach a level of frustration in that game, you may finally ask, well, what else is there? That's like the depressing way of getting there. The more happy way of getting there is hopefully along the way you've had some peak experiences with a lover. Uh-huh in which the energy did rise higher, in which you did hit notes that were beyond the third center, where you felt you weren't simply using each other or just engaged in your conquest. And hopefully those speak moments uh, become your reference point and you say, well, whatever that experience was, that's worth having. How do we have more of that? Yeah, but unfortunately most people take the depressing route. Like we've spoken before, like getting men into workshops is really hard because if they've never been humiliated they probably don't want to consider there's more for them to learn you know each 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 on their own everybody is on their path Mm -hmm. 
So it's actually not very useful to try and rush people. Mm -hmm. They will come to it when they come to it. I, I have big faith in that. I'm kind of yeah. superstitious that way. I feel even if somebody is listening to this conversation, some part of them might be ready for it. I, I kind of have faith in that. Mm -hmm. So people come to it when they come to it. We all, I believe we all have our own guidance system. So when you're ready for it, hopefully you will find a way to it. Yeah. Uh, so you spoke a little bit ago about uh, I guess slight differences between men and women, or I guess masculine people and feminine people, perhaps. Yeah. Um, I, and I know uh, the first part of your book it really touches on these differences, like uh, manhandling or, or women. Um, yeah. Can you speak on some of the common things you've seen in relationships that block intimacy between men and women? The biggest thing I'm seeing is uh, what is in chapter one and three, if I may speak about the women first. The biggest obstacle I'm seeing, kind of on a very wide scale, is there is a lot of anger and disapproval in the feminine these days towards the masculine. And it seems like a very big phenomenon. It doesn't feel like a local phenomenon. It almost feels archetypical. It almost feels epic. Mm -hmm. It almost feels uh, it's generational or it goes back hundreds. It seems to be on some long arc. At least yeah. it feels that way. That there is a lot of distrust. There's a lot of anger in the hearts of women towards men and I feel it's like it's the it's their spiritual challenge I think on how they might find their way through it my answer that I propose is forgiveness that if the feminine archetype feels that the masculine archetype has been cruel bad oppressive punishing the masculine will only work so far Punishment really never, vengeance never really works too well. Especially if you're trying to create intimacy with men. It's it's a very crazy thing to try and do. You can't hate somebody and try to live with them. You can't hate somebody and try and live joy with them. Yeah, because either they get antagonistic back or they get really small, which seems to be a lot of the the dissatisfied women are have shrunken their men or they the men have allowed themselves to be shrunken due to this... It is, yeah, it is a very, and I think men are also very suffering. Men mm -hmm. desperately desire the love and approval of their women. And the longer they stay in the field of disapproval, the worse men. It's, you know, it's the, they certainly feel worse, but, you know, it's the kind of the law of expectations. They actually become worse at times. So it really feels like a downward spiral. Mm -hmm. Women are expecting their men to fail and then men keep failing. Yeah, really is very sad to watch because they can't dig themselves out of it. Sometimes they can when they find another reference point, but on their own, it's very hard for them to kind of start an upward spiral. Yeah, in the disapproval cycle with their partner. Yeah, it feels like you're in debt. Like you're in debt to like masculine energy. Like you have this sinkhole, and then everything you do is like another expenditure with a woman. I, I experienced something like this recently, actually. Share your part. We can talk about it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, oh, so my girlfriend and I were, were playfully arguing about masculinity. I was talking about how toxic masculinity, that phrase, 
only creates more uh, hatred between between sexes and et cetera. I, I had my point and she disagreed and it was fine. And I, but my point was that uh, it's important to allow the masculine instinct to express itself and that'll allow, that'll prevent like violence and all this toxicity. Anyway, the next morning there was a cockroach uh, in, in our apartment and uh, I was going to kill it. I was going to do like the manly thing of slaying the beast and I like get away. So I failed in her eyes and right, right in front of her, this was the first thing in the morning, right after a conversation, she was like, oh, you were right. Like, uh, I saw you fail for this manly thing, and now I actually feel less attracted to you. And, like, we were able to talk about it, but it was, like, funny. So I was, like, validated that my thoughts were correct, but now I had failed in front of my woman. And, like, the rest of the day, anything I did, uh, and I was a little flustered after this, anything I did was, like, another failure, another failure. And, like, by by the by lunchtime, I was, like, wow, I this relationship's over like <laughs> completely failed like i i've lost my all my masculinity with this stupid cockroach um cockroach. So I, I dug myself out of it i read a norman mailer book i got in touch with my testosterone he might have sent you out to kill a wolf or a bear at least that would have been honorable if he had failed yeah <laughs> or a cockroach man masculinity truly is hanging in a the balance these days it's yeah good and it was just, it was just funny that like this little incident, I mean, it was also primed with our conversation, but this little incident could actually uh, change her perception. And I was thinking about how all the relationships where a man fails and he, he has this, like his ego needs to, to prove this thing. And he, he genuinely his you know, his masculine energy wants to do this certain thing and he feels afraid to, and then he's being shamed whether he wins or loses. And I, I could see, you know, obviously my example is kind of silly and obviously if not any real consequence, but I could see that. Um, yeah. I hear you. I mean, uh, I don't, I don't know. Ask me a question. I'm, let me give you okay. a yeah, I was just sharing. <laughs> um, well, so actually, well, so pulling off of that, uh, what do you recommend to men who feel shame around this? If either shame of, uh, they can't, handle their woman or shame in, in handling like this idea. I see that men a lot, like they're damned if they do, they're damned if they don't. Yeah. Uh, what, what do they, how do they proceed in their relationship? Well, it's a big question. It's basically saying how do we create the modern man? Hmm. Yeah. Um, we can kind of break that up into you know, we don't really talk much about character these days, which is kind of odd. We used to have a, men used to have this idea that there is such a thing as being a man of character. And that was kind of the compass that they kept. Um, quite often it came, you know, it came from both parents that what does it mean to be a man of character? We were given examples of it. And hopefully if you came from a happier, not a perfectly happy, but a happier functioning household, your father kind of provided, hopefully your father was a man of character, somebody you could emulate. So you had a role model to follow. What does it look like? It looks like a man of character keeps his word. A man of character uh, does not blame others for his emotions or his problems. A man of character is reliable. A man of character is generous. A man of character is uh, a part of his community. He serves his community. He steps up and uh, helps people when it's needed. 
his word was always very important. That a man of character is a man of his word. When he says he's going to do something, he follows through. He doesn't break his promises. Man of character has strength. That when called on to act in challenging situations, whether they be tiny creepy situations like handling cockroaches or something more challenging, that he doesn't shrink from it. That he has courage. That in a moment that may evoke fear or doubt. He does not let his fear or doubt stall him in his action. I think those standards are still good. I don't think anything has changed in the world that we really need to redefine what masculinity is. Those age-old notions of being a good man, being a reliable man, being a strong man, not in some kind of a weird, violent, macho way, but simply having the strength to simply face life's challenges and stepping up, having a strong protective instinct towards the people you love, towards your women, towards your children, towards your friend. Loyalty, the giving and receiving of loyalty, it's absolutely crucial. All these virtues, which are not, you know, they're not eccentric or bizarre, and then they're very commonplace, but those same things apply just as well today. Mm. And that is certainly, and you know, we can divide, kind of divide up the journey when you say what makes a man. And we are in this book, and our work has dealt a bit more with Eros. So we can kind of divide up that to be a good, solid man, a very eligible man, I don't know however you want to put it, hopefully you also have some solid training in handling your woman. But as far as your character goes, those same old definitions of characters, I think, still apply. Mm-hmm. Quite valid. And doesn't the character lead into the skills of handling? They're absolutely a character. Your character is going to be absolutely needed for relationship, mm-hmm. to have a relationship function. If you don't have character, if you don't keep your word, if you are not honorable, your relationships will flounder. Mm. If your relationships flounder, there will be nothing to build a great erotic life on. If your woman doesn't trust you, if she doesn't think highly of you, if she doesn't think you're a good person, she won't be receptive to you. She won't really let you in. She won't feel safe and well good around you and that'll sabotage your erotic journey together hmm. and i see that a lot too and I, th- I you know i talk about this a lot in the book but i see people often come in to the workshops i offer and workshops maybe in erotic technique and things and they often come in saying you know we just want to improve our sex life and learning technique and improving uh all that stuff is wonderful, but then you can see the real problem that real obstacles that they're facing are in the relational zone, that they are not trusting each other, that they have broken their word to each other, that the trust has eroded and the receptivity has closed. So the technique can't really be added on on top of it. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. You know I mean? I'm sure you probably have at least some experience with this. Yeah. You can't add technique on top of a floundering relationship. It doesn't work. This is why... Yeah, this is why I have a policy. I give people full refund in my workshops. If they, sh- I, first of all, I tell them, if you're in a bad space together, 
you know, my workshops are for couples and I specifically warn them, if you're in a bad space with each other, if, you, if you're not in a trusting space with each other, please do not come to the workshop. Take a free refund, come another time. Because it's useless. I, I won't be able to teach them anything. They really won't be able to absorb if the relationship is not in a good zone. You can't build Eros on top of a rickety relationship. Yeah. So your book is kind of what the couple should read before the workshop to make sure they're in a good place. I wrote it. You know, I, I was, uh, there are other books I want to write, but I was like, that's why it's called prerequisites. I feel you know, my brain wants to go in order. I would, I love teaching people hands-on work. You know that you've been in my classes. Mm -hmm. I feel it's direly needed. Hands-on training and Eros is very much needed in our society. Not enough people are doing it. But there is a conversation that needs to come before, and this is it. It's in the book. Yeah. Yeah, I love that in your workshop, most, most. I mean, I, I call it energetics, but like focusing on the the feelings between the people. Like you spend uh, an entire period on on posturing, which is not necessarily like a, a technical skill, but it, it gives you the feeling of like dominance of submission more than something being rushed into. Yeah, to me, that... Uh, expressing our archetype and being supportive of each other's archetype is like almost the foundational it's the foundation upon which you build it's knowing who you are in relationship to your partner showing it to them fully showing up fully and vice versa and from there the game begins what I mean mm -hmm. in the chapter on uh DS training for everyone and you know I, I talk about the metaphor of ballroom dancing that if two two people show up and they have some basic training at ballroom dancing they know the starting point they know the basic steps and they know their starting point and if they have that from there they can start the dance but i think in relationships that kind of starting point has been lost or people are not trained in it anymore and mm -hmm. they they're, they're acting in the same way. I think this is where the shortcoming of the egalitarian principle is. They think they're kind of both doing the same dance. And that mm -hmm. works to some level in, in creating a friendly relationship and in, in creating something together, but it doesn't really work in the erotic realm. Yeah, you hear it a lot in, uh, in, in long-term couples that where the spark has died. It's like, oh, we become best friends. I go, that's great. Now you're the same person. <laughs> Which is also nothing to scoff at. Being best friends and staying best friends and taking care of each other and finding common ground, enjoying things together. It is an amazing accomplishment in the relationship realm. It is nothing to scoff at. It is lovely. It is beautiful. It means there are two people who know each other, who are honest with each other, who love each other, who are interested in supporting each other. And they're doing that. And that's great. But Eros tends to thrive on polarity, just the way it works. Mm -hmm. So in the long in long term couples, it's kind of an interesting challenge to how to have both. Yeah, because you, you had a whole chapter on on long term eros. Um, what are some of the suggestions you have for, for those long term couples? Biggest one is find your differences and cherish your differences. Because mm -hmm. Eros thrives on polarity. Eros thrives in a complementary relationship, not on similarity and egalitarian relationship. So you're talking about opposite personality traits or opposite interests or styles? Uh, uh, certainly from a, I 
teach BDSM, I teach dominance and submission. I kind of feel if any person, once they start exploring, will discover they do have some aspect of either a dominant or a submissive in them. And if that's a great area to start exploring to see which way does your eros lean? Which way are you getting off more? Mm -hmm. Are you giving up control? Do you enjoy taking control? And learn that art. That's a very big and beautiful and deep art. That's a door that kind of, you know, it's one of those things you go through it and doors will keep opening. You will keep making discoveries in dominance and submission if you find a polarity within yourself and your lover. Do you find that uh, with complementary archetypes, they always are some form of, con like, is control the thing between complementary archetypes? Like, there's always some version of dom and some version of sub? I don't know if I can speak universally. I'm, I'm almost, I hope for people that they find a complementary characteristic in their, in their pair. It's not always the case. I think if we, if people were looking for it right from the beginning, their odds of long-term eros would be better. But that's the trouble. People are not looking for the right information in their partners. If you know yourself to be dominant or submissive, you are better off finding a partner that matches, that has the complementary piece. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But is that like an intentional? search like isn't it isn't aren't people naturally drawn to their opposite no hmm. i mean if people are naturally drawn to perfect partners this uh, world would be a much sunnier place <laughs> yeah well I, i've always thought like at least when someone's like following their feelings and being drawn to a partner it's because for better or for worse they're a negative uh like you know a victim archetype with a perpetrator archetype is not consensual or healthy but like People find that in each other. I think those are very different conversations. First of all, if you're in your victim archetype and you're just looking, it, it's you're, it'd be hard to say you're even consciously searching. It's the pattern is running the show. Hmm. All of our unconscious patterns are running the relationship show most of the time. And the stronger our unconscious patterns are, the less the less we have made them visible the less we have dealt with our shadow the more we will be at the effect of our patterns and then people kind of end up creating the same unhappy story over and over it, you know one person keeps finding keeps keeps finding the same alcoholic boyfriend wondering why hmm. so how would you uh uh separate this archetype that wants to be expressed from a pattern because are they simply just like the conscious and unconscious version of the same thing yeah pretty much i mean they're not the same thing they're not the same thing at all i mean uh if you're being run by your unconscious pattern if you don't know what is drawing you to certain people especially if it's not working and they end up you know the Easy marker of this is not the beginning infatuation phase. The true marker of this is the more painful ending phase. If your mm -hmm. relationships keep ending in the same painful way, you're stuck in a pattern. If mm -hmm. your fights with your current partner are the same as the fights with your last partner, you're in a pattern. If the complaints you're having, if you feel fate is against you, if you feel fate keeps pushing the same obstacles, the same misery, in your path, relationship after relationship, 
sorry to inform you, it's you. The world is not against you. Some part of you has an unconscious pattern that is creating the scenario which, which keeps generating the same emotions, the same trauma, the same pain over and over. And some part of your soul probably needs to grapple with that. That's probably why it's happening. Mm-hmm. In the wider lens, it all makes sense. But if you feel you're actually done with a particular set of misery, then you will kind of turn the you know the bright light of your awareness on it and say, enough already. I don't I really want to find a way out of this. I not no more relationships that end up exactly the same way, no more same pattern. What's going on? Let me heal it. Let me deal with it. Let me forgive whoever I need to forgive. So I can actually create something deliberately, create something that is more fun, create something that is more celebratory. And how do you suggest someone to start? Let's say someone listening right now is just like, oh, I have this pattern. My last five X's did exactly this thing. Now what? I don't, I mean, it's, you're basically, the pat answer would be seek guidance, seek some therapy, seek some help, seek some feedback from other people. If you have found a rich area where you feel certain some healing needs to happen, then go and find whatever method you feel will help you do the healing. If you need one pat answer, my suggestion, my universal suggestion will always be forgiveness. Hmm. See who you can forgive. See what anger, what resentment you can let go of. It is the biggest thing you can do. Mm. Usually we have something to forgive. Usually we have someone to forgive. And, you know, Freud may have gone out of uh, fashion these days, but he wasn't, he was a brilliant man. Most of the time you can have the forgiveness that needs to happen will probably be towards one or both parents. Mm. Forgive your parents. It will change your life. (laughs) If your relationships are in the dumps over and over, uh, try and forgive your parents. Try and forgive whoever were the primary imprints of your first relationships, whatever, wherever the first pain was. With uh, somebody with whom you had are somebody with whom you were supposed to have a loving relationship, but didn't. Someplace mm. where you really desperately needed love, but didn't get it. You have to forgive people for not loving you the way you needed to be loved. It's the biggest thing that is sabotaging people's relationships. It's a big yeah. hurt. You need to forgive people, oftentimes your parents, for not loving you the way you wish they had loved you. Hmm. Try that. If all else fails, or if you need a quick fix, try that. See what happens. Cool. I think that was a great pad answer, soundbite to go yeah. back to. Yeah. Um, so before we, I go into like another topic, uh, we did get a question uh, from a live listener, so I'll ask it now. Um, it's a bit long. You actually read it on the chat box. When blocks feel like they come up cons- consistently with a potential partner you really desire that you can feel the beginning of a deep connection with, what do you, you feel is out of balance in the individual experiencing this? How would you shift the situation to clear these blocks? I want to feel I deserve to have the experiences with the women I want and can feel desire for intimacy with too, but something gets in the way. 
I think the biggest uh, word in this question is deserving. So it again goes back to the third center. If deserving is the central concept or the central, uh, if the idea of deserving is kind of the bone stuck in your throat, basically, look at that. It's a very big esteem piece. And the esteem journey is not, don't look for quick fixes, don't look for shortcuts, unfortunately. This is, I mean, the truth is that if there's a pattern that keeps coming up in a relationship, it is an old pattern. And uh, we need to respect old patterns. You can look at them and make an effort to kind of pull the thorn out of your system, but don't think you can just do it overnight all the time. Don't look for a quick fix. The bigger thing is start looking. If you think deserving is a big thing that comes up for you every time things get good, and that's the case for a lot of people. Deserving is simply, it's its a universal, it's, a, it's like in the configuration, in the esteem configuration, one of the ways the weakness of the third center presents itself is you will feel you're not, you, will, you do not deserve the good. So it is a very common um, facet that shows up when things mm-hmm. get good. When you actually are with somebody whom you admire, when you are with somebody whom you consider or who you consider of high esteem, and we are always seeking that, we are always seeking partners that we can look at and say, wow, this person is incredible. This person is really special. Well, if only I could be close to this person, that would be amazing. This person is, ah. And uh, the fact that you have found them to be of high esteem, watch out. (laughs) Esteem centers will trigger and ricochet back and forth. And our esteem center will never allow us to have somebody who we think to a certain degree is of higher esteem than us. Hmm. So to put it in colloquial language, putting them on a pedestal prevents you from being connected. I think putting people on a pedestal, again, I think it's a slightly different concept. I think men tend to put women on pedestals. And that's not what I'm talking about. Putting women on pedestals is actually... uh, way of not seeing women. It's a way of idealizing the ideal woman and not actually seeing the real woman. So you'd say that's different than uh, seeing her as a very high esteem? Yeah, seeing her someone as really amazing, seeing as, seeing her someone as really worth pursuing, somebody worth having a relationship with. But anytime you have that higher, if you estimate her to be of high value, part of you will say, well, you deserve her. Are you deserving of the good? And then you have to grapple with your own, own uh, the holes in your third center where you feel you're lacking, where you feel you need to answer your esteem. And there mm-hmm. isn't a good fix for that. That's a journey. The journey so, of the third is the human journey. It's a very long arc. So would you say, to, to summarize this question, we see it a lot in, in people who, I mean, I've heard this a million times, like, oh, I can attract lots of people. A lot of people think I'm attractive, except the ones that I like, except for the men I like or the women I like. Right. Um, would you say 
I mean, to summarize what you said, would it be a lack of self-love ultimately at the root of not letting your, yourself have what you really want? Again, I'm here. I hear a couple of different things. Attracting people, being able to attract somebody to you, or being able to get somebody's attention in a social situation, or through dating, online dating, whatever, all that stuff. All that can only mean you're simply playing a surface game. You're actually just playing a presentation game. And mm-hmm. I speak of this extensively in the book about trying to seduce people with your presentation is not a very good way to go about things. Try and seduce people, this whole chapter title, seduce Truth and, hmm. and, and seduce people with the life you're leading. Don't try to seduce people with your presentation. So the, the more common problem in what you mentioned is I can, you know, I can attract a bunch of people, but it doesn't really work out. To me, as I speak extensively in that chapter, that is a shortcoming of attracting people to your presentation. Because you may get them in bed, you may get them charmed on your first or second date, but eventually they're gonna find out who you are. And if your presentation diverges deeply from who you actually are as a human being, eventually people are gonna figure out who you are and they're gonna feel, you know, they're not, they're not gonna be happy. It's, gonna, it's false advertising. Mm-hmm. You presented a face that was very attractive, and they said yes to it. But it isn't—it isn't who you really are. So that game is going to run thin once people actually get to know you, mm-hmm. right? And but the, and then you can go dig deeper. Well, why are we doing that in the first place? You know, I start off the chapter saying there's a deep. When we lie about ourselves, there's a deep pessimism in it. There's a deep, deeply depressing premise when we try to seduce people with our presentation. Because essentially what we are saying is, if I actually show you who I am, you're not going to be seduced by me. Right? Hmm. Otherwise, why bother with the presentation layer? If you're confident that as I am, if you simply get to know me, I'm hot stuff, I'm great stuff, you should want to be with me. If you're confident about that, why would you create a presentation layer? Yeah. The reason we create a presentation layer is we believe that if you actually got to know the real me, I'm not really all that great. I'm not that great. So well, so what am I going to do? All right, well, let me create a cover. Let me create a presentation. Let me prop myself up in my presentation phase. Let me be more charming than I actually am. Let me learn techniques. But that game runs thin after a while. And that brings it back to the idea with the third, the third chakra trap. If, if you actually uh, respect yourself, then you don't need to play any of these games in the first place. It's very true. And also that is also so very genuinely attractive about people, people who actually come across as being comfortable in their skin. Yeah, mm-hmm. the colloquial word for it is confidence. But confidence, because it's such a valued commodity, confidence has become... There's a lot of counterfeit confidence in the world. Yeah, it's a technique in itself. One of the most counterfeit items there is in in our society. It is a third chakra counterfeit, the presentation of confidence. The entire pickup community and so many of the other people who teach seduction, they teach how to appear confident because they know it is attractive. 
But once again, if you're pretending, the pretending is going to run out after a while. If you're actually interested in having a relationship with somebody. Mm-hmm. But if you truly are comfortable in your skin, if you truly are showing people who you are and you're happy with who you are, that is tremendously attractive. To come across a person who's simply showing you who they are and they are happy with it. Everybody finds that attractive. Women find that attractive and men, men go crazy for women who just seem comfortable in their skin. Do we not? Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's the most seductive. It can drive men absolutely wild to see a woman who's simply chilled out in her femininity, who simply knows herself, is easy in her skin, and she shows that to you. You want to get closer to that. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm curious now. Uh, well, we, we have a few minutes left, so I want to speak about your book in a second. Um, but uh, if for everyone, anyone who's listening, if there's one thing you can suggest or one exploration you can suggest to people in uh, increasing their ability to be intimate in the way they want, would there be any any venture you would suggest to a person? Bring awareness into your patterns. Bring awareness into where you're running on autopilot. I think where people are running on autopilot is where their relationships are getting sabotaged. Hmm. So it's a spiritual practice to some degree. Hmm. Your level of awareness and bring your level of awareness into your patterns. And from there, take responsibility. Take responsibility for your emotions. Take responsibility for your reactions, your triggers. Hmm. Don't... Put it on other people. Don't try to put it on other people. So in, in a sense, recognizing your own patterns and how it's yours. Yeah, and take responsibility. Personal responsibility is one of the biggest things. Hmm. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so uh, your book's out on Amazon, uh, iBooks, and yeah, Amazon, Kindle, and print, right? Uh, we have the link in the green button below. Um, I am curious, is just a side trivia question, because I know you have some controversial uh, information, especially about the man-woman dynamic. Have you gotten any blowback about that yet? I actually feel the information is not that controversial, to tell you the truth. Hmm. My tone in there is a little bit harsh. And that's just the way it came out of me. And I, you know, I have a wonderful uh, mentor and teacher who has over the years helped me quite a bit who initially took me to task and helped me see my shadow side. She's a wonderful teacher and she would, uh, a very big personality, very big person. So she has a thing she does when she is uh, taking somebody to task, when she's uh, analyzing somebody, she will really raise her voice at them. And then Mm -hmm. in the middle of her tirade, she'll say, the only reason I'm speaking this loudly is so you can hear me over the monkeys in your head. And I love hmm. it for that. You know, and some of the, some of, at, at certain points, when I was writing this book and some of the ideas, I think especially in the first three chapters, I don't know whether I was channeling my mentor or there was some some aspect like, you're going to have to say this louder you're going to have to be more obnoxious here because 
the counter listening is very heavy in our culture. Uh-huh. So I'm, I've kind of taken a gamble and said, I'm going to risk being obnoxious here. I'm going to risk saying this a little louder because it desperately needs to be heard. Yeah. It truly desperately might trust me. It's uh, behind the seeming uh, anger, obnoxiousness on the page is a very tender desire in my heart that men and women can come to a different place in their relating. But if they don't forgive each other, if they don't come to a friendly meeting point, it's very difficult. Mm. And our ego is attached to disapproval. Our ego is very much attached to finding other people wrong. It props, the ego gets propped up. You are the one, you are the one with the problem. You are the one not showing up. You are the one not killing the cockroach. You're not man enough. You're not blah, blah, blah. And as long as we're playing that game, we kind of keep creating and recreating the misery. So that's kind of a, it might be a hard thing to hear for some people, but on the other hand, many people are, it's very funny. It's, it's kind of hilarious. I always, I thought the first and third chapter are going to land very, really difficult with women. Some women might not be able to read it, but so far, so this is a funny thing that keeps happening. Every woman who's read it so far kind of writes me a note either in the margin or an email saying it is really important information. And then they put in parentheses, it's possible some women might not be able to hear it, but all the women so far have been able to hear it. <laughs> it's like even women are terrified of the disapproval of women. Even women are terrified. Are you crazy talking like that to women? They're going to take your head off. And I'm like, I have to take my chances here. I feel hmm. certain things need to be said and they're crucial. So the volume yeah. is a bit on those. Cassie says, yeah. woo. I think she's celebrating what you just said. Awesome. Cool. Uh, well, this has been real enlightening. I love the book. I recommend to everyone check it out. It's on Amazon. It's on iBooks, Prerequisites to Ecstasy. Um, is there anything else you want to... You have a workshop coming up too, right? I'm teaching my uh, DS Fundamentals workshop, a vegan workshop for couples in July... Uh, end of July 29th and 30th in New York City. The information about that is on my website in the workshop section. Please come. Please learn. It's a great class. I love teaching it. It's always great to see people afterwards. They're glowing at the end of it. So, Yeah, it's a great class. But show up in a good good space. Otherwise, That's you're not coming in the room. Any other questions you want? Uh, no, I think, uh, yeah, if anyone else has any questions for Om, you can uh, contact him on his website. Uh, I did have other pages of notes, but I think we'll just, we'll just close up here. I think we covered a lot of great information. Wonderful. Awesome. Okay. All right, well, thanks, Om. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to be a part of the virtual audience for future episodes, make sure to follow me at crowdcast.io slash Rwando. See you next time.